Welcome, this is Jing Mu Sherpa, Veterans Matters Program Coordinator at the Medical Society of the State of New York. I am joined today by Dr. Thomas Medeski, Immediate Past President of the Medical Society. Dr. Medeski is board certified in internal medicine, geriatric medicine, and hospice and palliative care medicine. This discussion will focus on substance use disorders in veterans and help physicians identify and diagnose substance use and discuss treatment options. What substances are commonly used by veterans? How does substance use in veterans differ from the general population? Veterans are subject to the full gamut of potential uh, substances for misuse. And because of coming through the military system, though, they're probably more prone to certain substances and less prone to others. For example, because the military has a zero-tolerance drug policy, veterans often are less likely to use illicit substances or alcohol. And their top three are the permitted substances within the military, which are alcohol, prescription drugs, and tobacco. Compared to the general population, they would tend to be less prone to use street drugs. Having said that, with marijuana becoming more popular for recreational use, and in some states being permitted for medicinal use, we are starting to see higher rates of marijuana use. So for veterans with substance use disorders, are there comorbidities? And can you talk about the interaction of substance use with other problems faced by veterans? So there are a number of comorbidities in the general population and in veterans that can influence the expression of substance use disorder and the severity of it. Again, because of veterans' exposure to military life, military culture, and potentially violent conflict, they have an increased risk of comorbidities, which would include traumatic brain injury. This is particularly true over the last decade or two with the growth of use of improvised explosive devices. With that, they also see repetitive trauma in combat and have a higher risk of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. They are exposed to opioids uh, for treatment of pain, both in the field and after coming home from a theater of conflict. And because of that, they probably have increased exposure to opioids overall. Because of uh, unclear reasons, there's a slight increase in comorbidities related to chronic kidney disease and diabetes in veterans. Some of that may be not so much service, but diet and or perhaps genetic predisposition. So how can physicians diagnose substance use disorders? The key thing that physicians need to recognize is that substance use disorders are rampant across society and veterans are part of society. We should be screening all our patients for substance use. In the Diagnostic Statistic Manual recent edition, there is a delineation of all the different known substances and criteria for them. So I'll speak in general about the approach to screening and then specifically about a couple others. As part of usually a routine health maintenance exam, we would ask patients about their use for alcohol and tobacco by trying to delineate what their usual use is and trying to quantitate that in comparison to what we would consider normal use. Alcohol is a little bit unique. It is a drug of abuse that is used socially and many people are able to use alcohol without developing a substance use disorder. Tobacco is used commonly, but again, since it really has no good medicinal value, any tobacco use would be considered essentially a disorder of use. Prescription drugs are another area. They can be used in a supervised fashion for therapeutic effect, 
But when we start to use them outside of that, they can become possible drug of misuse. So when my patients come in, whether they're veterans or not, as part of their social history, I'll ask them about their alcohol use, whether they smoke or use tobacco in any other way, whether they use any prescription drugs for unintended reasons other than what they were initially prescribed for. And then I will ask specifically about illegal drugs, particularly marijuana, which again is a changing status across society is an interesting question nowadays. And then I usually will ask about things like cocaine. Did you ever inject any drugs? Again, in my practice, I'll start with the initial questions. And then if we start going down a pathway where it looks like there is potential for substance use disorder, then I'm very specifically asking about other things to flesh out the, the patient's situation completely. The National Institute on Drug Abuse has a quick screen which you can find on our website, and there's uh, different quick assessments for each substance. Normally, they'll ask about use over the past three months or so. They will ask whether a patient had any urges or desire to use that they could not control, and the screening for a particular substance will usually ask about any negative consequences of use, particularly on their personal health, whether it had any negative social effect in terms of relationships, responsibilities whether there were any legal implications to use, for example, if you got a DWI with uh, alcohol, and whether it had any negative financial effect on you, loss of a job, losing money, or spending money on drugs that don't enable you to uh, meet your other financial responsibilities. After you do the screening tool, they usually have a bracketing system that break you into low risk, medium risk, and high risk. And there are interventions recommended for each one. So in somebody who's low risk, it's still worth doing some health teaching about proper use of a substance and to avoid substances that have harm in general. And to always create an ongoing relationship that if a patient is either not upfront at that meeting or develops difficulty down the line, they know that there's a door open for help. I can't emphasize that enough that one of the key things in terms of us seeing patients on a periodic basis to maintain their health is, again, creating and maintaining that relationship that a patient knows they have a place to go when they have a question or if they think they might be having a problem. So whether you're a low, medium, or high risk after the screen, we always give you advice on maintaining our relationship. We then sort of do an assessment of how much substance you're using. And then we can talk about assistance. We can talk about a referral for some counseling or psychotherapy. We can talk about medication-assisted treatment. And again, want to emphasize to patients that addictions appear to be lifelong problems with exacerbations and remissions like other diseases. And that one can do well for a time, but sometimes people will have complications relapse. And again, we're there able to help them to maintain sobriety and to improve their function. How can physicians assist veterans with reducing or eliminating substance use? Well, we talked about that a little bit in the last question. As I said, doing an assessment and then trying to figure out what works for the veteran. There are a number of different things we can do. For some substances, we have what's called medication-assisted treatment. And that is where we will give someone medicine to either replace a substance or somehow otherwise reduce uh, usage. And there are a number of different medication-assisted treatment protocols that are available. What can a physician do if their patient returns to substance use? And how can you help them in their effort to be in recovery? 
again, having a relationship with the patient that is ongoing and supportive is key. One of the problems with substance use is uh, long-term abstinence is sometimes difficult to achieve, and sometimes there are relapses. Relapses were previously looked upon as some failure of either your treatment the patient's inability to control their use, and often there was some stigmatization associated with that. Relapses need to be seriously evaluated to see where things went awry if someone had been abstaining from substance use, but they're part of the natural history of the disease now is the feeling. People who develop addictions do have changes in brain chemistry and physiology and structure, which can be demonstrated scientifically. And once those changes occur, uh, while they can improve with continued abstinence, in some people, they don't resolve completely and they are at risk. So again, when we're starting to treat a patient, we want to explain to them that we're going to help them and they need to do some work but it's a hard thing to do and that if they have failure initially, it doesn't mean that they can't succeed in the future. What medications are available to assist the veterans with substance use disorder? So there are a number of different medications available now, particularly for tobacco, opiates, and alcohol, and I'll talk about them briefly. With tobacco, we have a couple different medications that can assist in trying to avoid smoke and tobacco. So you can give a nicotine replacement therapy. That would be considered agonist therapy. And here, what we're trying to do is replace the nicotine from the tobacco product. So the exposure to the nicotine is less of an issue than the total tobacco exposure in terms of the smoke, other substances associated with either smoking or chewing tobacco. The idea behind that is to get people off of the tobacco product onto the nicotine product, and then if possible, to wean them off and also avoid the nicotine, which has its own set of health effects. There's also a partial agonist for nicotine, which blocks the nicotine receptor in the brain and may reduce need for smoking called Chantix by brand name, which is fairly popular and probably the most efficacious medication-assisted treatment for tobacco use disorder. Many patients do well with that. Patients with mental health issues may be more prone to having exacerbation of depression, so one needs to be careful with that if there is a psychiatric comorbidity. The other big area of medication-assisted therapy is with opioid use disorder, and there we have three medications essentially right now. Methadone, which is a narcotic agonist, binds the narcotic receptor very tightly and prevents other opioids from binding to the opioid receptor. With methadone, we can stabilize on a fixed dose of a narcotic, and they then do not get additional benefit from using narcotic on top of that because of the blocking effect, and also are prevented from going into withdrawal. Methadone actually probably has some of the best efficacy for reducing chance of death from overdosage if people go back to using either prescription or more concern is injecting street opioids, which may be adulterated with fentanyl. Another popular partial agonist is buprenorphine. It partially binds to the opioid receptor and may have some other additional benefit in terms of having less respiratory effects that it may also be helpful in terms of reducing chance of death from overdosage and again preventing death from illicit substance use. The other medications available is an antagonist, naltrexone, which is uh, similar to naloxone, which is our other narcotic antagonist. We use naloxone acutely in overdosage because it has a rapid effect. Naltrexone is used as an injectable. One has been detoxified from an opioid. 
and it would prevent effect of other opioid use. One of the really good things about medication-assisted treatment is that using medication-assisted treatment, the risk of death from overdosage is reduced. And that is one of the questions in terms of long-term management is how long should people be on medication-assisted treatment? I think there's a significant discussion within the experts in the field. And at this point, that question is not answered, I would say. I think it's individualized to each patient. If patients are doing well, we seem to do better staying on medication-assisted treatment. Some patients do feel a desire to come off of medication after they've been sober for a while. And that should be done in a supervised fashion and a very good discussion of the risks and benefits of coming off the medication needs to be had with the patient because of the protection against overdose if there is relapse. The third area of medication-assisted treatment is for alcohol. And there's a couple different medications available there. The oldest medication is disulfiram or antabuse, which affects alcohol metabolism and creates acetaldehyde, which produces a very unpleasant sensation if you drink. That medication is not used much anymore because of needs taken on a daily basis, compliance issues, and the noxious effects of using it. Currently, there's a couple different medicines which are available to assist with alcohol medication-assisted treatment. The first is acamprosate or camprol, which is an NMDA antagonist and also has some effect on gamma-aminobutyric acid. It is helpful in uh, reducing chance of drinking. In head-to-head studies, uh, patients who use camprol have about a 36% abstinence rate at six months as opposed to a 17 or 18% of placebo. The other drug that is available for medication-assisted treatment with alcohol is naltrexone, which can be taken as an oral dosage uh, daily or as a monthly injection. What advice would you give physicians so they can provide better care for veteran patients with substance use disorders? We've talked a little bit about that. I think, again, in being a good physician, in my opinion, you need to have an established relationship with the patient and be comfortable with one another and trust one another. So having that, again, sets the stage to have these discussions over the course of a patient's life. With regards to veterans, many people have served now and are out of the military, and there are consequences to that service that we've seen in each generation that's gone through any type of conflict. I think it's really important to ask about whether someone has served, and I think it's important in a open and non-judgmental way to ask if they felt they had any difficulties related to their service, and gently explore that to see, one, particularly if you can pull out any issues with substance use that might have been precipitated by their service, and some of those mental health comorbidities that we talked about. I think we need to have a sense of military culture. And again, asking those questions in a non-confrontational fashion is important. Military culture produces some stigmatization of substance use, and veterans often have concerns about confidentiality because in the service, your records are not completely confidential. So you, again, need to build up some confidence with the patient, very discreet discussion between you and the patient and that their uh, privacy will be maintained. Dr. Medeski, thank you so much for providing the information on the topic. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about any of the topics discussed here, please go to MISNI's CME website at cme.misni.org and look under Resources. Additionally, there are several Veterans Matters webinars archived there. These programs provide participants with one free CME credit.